this is a spoiler. You can't listen you know. to this and not have spoilers. Even now, let's just uh, jump right in. The Beast in the Jungle. Okay, so this is Henry James, Beast in the Jungle. I'm going to give a brief summary here, and hopefully it'll get us everything we need. The trouble with doing that is that I think this is sort of a story in search of a plot in some ways. Um, it's not going it, to find it. <laughs> right. It's, it's tough <laughs> because so much of what's going on in this story is psychological, and as far as events, there's very little really. But there are some things we can say. Um, it's this, there are basically two characters in this story, and two characters only, really. It's John Marcher and Mae Bartram. And we open up with them, and they're in some sort of a social event together, and he is, she's caught his eye, and he's caught hers, and uh, he's sort of trying to remember. It's not clear exactly uh, under what circumstances, but they've met before, and they sort of... Uh, pace around each other a little bit until they're alone. And um, then they begin having a conversation and he thinks he re remembers her, although it's it's sort of unclear exactly in what manner. And then he tells her a story of when he thinks they met before and she decides it's all wrong and, and gets the details right for him. And he's starting to feel that he's starting to be a little bit disappointed with the encounter until she reveals to him that he at one point in the past shared his secret with her. And his secret is that he believes that at some point in his life, something extraordinary and extraordinarily horrible is going to happen to him. And it's going to set him apart from pretty much everyone else. And he believes this so strongly and so completely that it's sort of set him apart in his life even before whatever is going to happen. I mean, all throughout his life, he has sort of existed apart and it's made just behavior or performance out of everything he does because the only real significance in his life is coming from the expectation of this event. And that is sort of what bonds the two of them because she's the only one he's ever told and she's never told anyone else either. And to him, this makes her special in association with his secret. And it's through her companionship that he's able to feel normal in his life and appear normal because she shares his secret. And they form a relationship going forward through the years, and they have pretty much one topic of conversation between them, and that's this, what he calls the beast in the jungle. And that's this thing that he expects at some point in his life to happen that's going to be horrible. And he doesn't know what it is, and she doesn't know. And they talk about it, they meet, and and they talk about it in public and, you know, they both kind of go on with their lives. But always this is in the background and this is really the thing that is giving both of their lives meaning. Eventually, they, they grow a lot older and she gets sick and she's sort of um, not exactly bedridden, but she's stuck in the house. 
and he has to go and meet with her. But still, when he does, the conversations are revolving around this secret, this beast in the jungle, this impending doom. And she uh, sort of reveals to him eventually that she believes she knows what it's going to be. Or he gets he catches hints that he she thinks she knows, but she won't tell him. And he finally asks her outright whether she has a more dreadful vision for him than anything he's been able to conceive of so far. And she admits that she has, but he wants to know, you know, whether he'll suffer. And she says no. And he wants to know if he was wrong. Was he lying to himself this whole time? And she says, no, something is going to happen. And eventually there comes a moment when she waits for him to see what she supposes that this thing is. And he doesn't. And then she tells him that it's happened and he doesn't know it, but it's over. And this frustrates him even more. And he keeps waiting for her to tell him, but she won't. And uh, she says, you know, it's better that you don't know and you shouldn't try to find out. And she's getting sicker and he's all the more frustrated. And uh, eventually she dies and he goes to sort of travel the world and he's very disappointed. He's distraught and he's he misses her, but it's mainly the conversation with her that he misses because he no longer has a companion to share his secret with. And after traveling the world, he comes back and he finds that he really only feels significant, you know, within close proximity to her grave. And so he resolves to stay close to it. And he still doesn't understand why he feels so deeply there, but nowhere else. And one day he passes a man who's been mourning some lost loved one. And he realizes suddenly that when he sees his face, this is what he too has been doing. And he realizes that he and May Bartram actually loved each other and that this was the catastrophe that he's been waiting for the whole time. This was the beast in the jungle. And she knew that this love between them was the thing that could have avoided uh, this catastrophe if he had only recognized it, but he didn't. So now realizing this, he can't stand it and he throws himself on the grave, and that's the end of the story. Bravo. <laughs> well done, Daniel. Well done. Hopefully I covered all the bases. Except for, except for the part where you're the reader and you want to strangle him the whole time. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, God, how thick can you be? Well, I feel I, I was uh, thick with him the whole time. Like, and, and right up until the end, I was like, "What's going on? <laughs> What's happening?" All right, okay. So, is there like some? Is it going to turn magical or something? Like, uh, uh, what, Nathan, what's the thing? Absolutely... What is it? What is the thing? What's the secret? What's just the tell thing? him. Why don't you just oh, tell him? You have to give me the. You have to give me the the phone numbers of every woman you associate with, so I can call and apologize. <laughs> oh, uh, um, I am going to get that right to you, Laura, and I, I I will help you. I will fund you. That was Mary, actually. Oh, I want to talk to every woman you've been with. Too. <laughs> I need a committee, well, you know basically. For All Mary and I, the story was a little spoiled because we listened to this course. Um, called Literary Modernism, and this professor, Jeffrey Pearl, talks about it, and that was, I think, where Mary's origin for the suggestion came from, right? Yeah. So we knew the beginning, we, we knew from the beginning how it was going to end, and I, I am actually very curious to hear the rest of you guys' thoughts on this, because I wondered how this story would read for somebody who didn't know that. Yeah, I read it all in one go. Oh, you mean you knew about it when you from this first, before you read it? Yeah, yeah we knew what the ending was going to be. See, I, I read it first time without listening to that course, and I didn't get as much the first time as I did the second time. I thought it was one of those like M. Night Shyamalama moments where it's like, oh, it's all about love. You know, it was right in front of you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's love. 
I don't know. I don't know if I hadn't heard that, if I wouldn't still think that he was incredibly thick. I, I mean, maybe it's just, you know, part of being a woman, right? And you, um, I don't know. I shouldn't say that it's part of being a woman. Why anyone would devote their life to your quest. They have, there has to be something in it for them. And if they're not, you know, no one's going to put up with your unbelievable self-involvement, make themselves involved in it if they actually don't have some sort of intense emotion for you, let's call it. Well, and that's his worry the whole time. He's worried that she's not getting anything out of it. Is he? You know, like, oh, absolutely. Oh, really? Where do you get that? I didn't get that at all. <laughs> really? Uh, no, no. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's a, uh, explicit passages where he, he uh, talks to her and says, you know, I'm worried that, that you being in this with me is I'm the only one getting anything out of this because you're always there to support me. Wait, where is that? Where's that? Oh, okay. I'll find Can it. Can you find that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let me know. We want proof. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously, genuinely. I agree. I agree with Nathan. It's, it's, I mean, I, you don't know how genuine he is, but he talks about how he's tried to be unselfish and that he does confront her explicitly about what she's getting out of this. And I think he just, he hears what he wants to hear, though, as a character. Well, I think, though, that there's, um, I think we have enough in the story, too, to question his motives in making some of those statements and asking some of those questions. Because I think that he makes apparent a few times that it's a sort of routine that he goes through in order to assuage his own guilt and in order and and it gets complicated because the question of exactly what the nature of their relationship is is extremely psychologically complicated right because like yeah. the, the, the old saying i don't know where it comes from about henry james right is that uh, he was the novelist who wrote like a psychologist and then william james was the psychologist who wrote like a novelist yeah here it is um on a this is kindle this is him uh, talking to May. Well, you're really so in with me, you know, as a sort of result of my being so in with yourself. I mean, of my having such an immense regard for you, being so tremendously mindful of all you've done for me. I sometimes ask myself if it's quite fair. Fair, I mean, to have so involved and, since one may say it, interested you. I almost feel as if you hadn't really had time to do anything else. And then she says, anything else but be interested? Ah, what else does one ever want to be? If I've been watching with you as we long ago agreed I was to do, watching's always in itself an absorption. Oh, certainly, he says. If you hadn't had your curiosity, only doesn't it sometimes occur, occur to you? Doesn't it sometimes come to you as time goes on that your curiosity isn't being particularly repaid? Particularly what? Repaid. So yeah, he has one moment where he realizes that he's been, that they've been focused on him the whole time. There's another line too, um, page 10. There was that in his situation, no doubt, that disposed him too much to see her as a mere confidant, taking all her light for him from the fact, the fact only of her interest in this predicament, from her mercy, sympathy, seriousness, her consent not to regard him as the funniest of the funny, aware and fine that her price for him was just in her giving him this constant sense of his being admirably spared. He was careful to remember that she had also a life of her own, with things that might happen to her, things that in friendship one should likewise take account didn't you get the feeling that he didn't take account of? Yeah, I think that's why he was just telling himself what he wanted to hear. You know, he thought of himself as a, un he refers to himself as a very unselfish person that, you know. Yeah, I love that part. And I mean, I have, I have a line underlined here. Like, she's on her deathbed and uh, I just have a line underlined and I, I just, it says prick and exclamation points. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote, <laughs> I did the same thing, but I wrote, what a dick. 
<laughs> so she, same party so part. she's dying and he says what do you regard as the very worst at this time of day can happen to me <laughs> <laughs> what about me and really when he feels sorry for her dying it's because she won't get to experience the singularity he's looking for <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i i it's interesting because there is this obvious devotion on both their parts. And I tried to figure out throughout if the devotion from him was ever beyond, even at the end when he throws himself on the grave, if it was ever beyond someone to listen to him, someone to be part of, his, you know, be complicit in his life. I was puzzled even at the end, you know, I mean, it's such a, it's a huge thing, right? He finally realizes, oh, love is the beast in the jungle. And I actually did love her, but I was so self-involved that I didn't see it. Well, yeah. And he also didn't want to involve her. You know, he thought he was taken on this. He was happy that she saw it as heroic. He was always ashamed, you know, that he would be, you know, found out for the secret. You know I mean? The first time that she says, do you remember that you told me that you were destined for this? And he's like, no, I mean, and it like flushes him because he never had told anybody that. And in, at some point, at some magical moment, they had this uh, relief in their confidence and uh, he felt comfortable to say it and he forgot even he buried it. You know, probably it was so. Uh, and then, you know, he's always worried that he's looking the fool in front of her. And that's why, you know, he harangues her so much. He's like, I don't get it. Like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you you're waiting for something to happen? And I'm just like trying to make it happen. And I'm worried that you don't see it happening and then that you're not getting anything out of this. And so. He drives himself uh, crazy trying to find this other thing. And then only at the last moment does he realize it's, you know, I've been in front of him the whole time. And that's what's like really you know, the horror story at the end of this. Just overwhelmed with an entire lifetime of longing and, um, and, and, uh, and the sympathy, like the way that this narration brings out the virtual interactions between peoples and the started conversations and the guest at thoughts and the it's beautiful. Um, go, going with what you just said, Nathan, let me read this here. This is a uh, Kindle at 35% location, 324. Um, what I see as I make it out is that you've achieved something almost unprecedented in the way of getting used to danger. Living with it so long and so closely, you've lost your sense of it. You know it's there, but you're indifferent, and you cease even, as of old, to have to have to whistle in the dark. Considering what the danger is, May Bartram wound up, I'm bound to say I don't think your attitude could well be surpassed. John Marcher faintly smiled. It's heroic? Certainly, call it that, she said. It was what he would have liked indeed to call it. I am then a man of courage? That's what you were to show me. He still, however, wondered. But doesn't the man of courage know what he's afraid of or not afraid of? I don't know that you see. I, I don't focus it. I can't name it. I only know I'm exposed. Yes, but exposed, how shall I say, so directly, so intimately. That's surely enough. Enough to make you feel then as what we may call the end and the upshot of our watch that I'm not afraid. You're not afraid, but it isn't, she said, the end of our watch. This isn't the end of yours. You've everything still to see. I mean, this guy is the biggest freaking narcissist in the world. And she's, I see as she's trying to take care of him all through her life, 
on her freaking deathbed. She's trying to take care of this guy. I, I remember what, thinking to myself, what, what happened in his childhood? I mean, what did his mother do to him? <laughs> and I read, I read up, uh, you know, in secondary sources about this book about Henry James. And a lot of people were saying how this book, this story, considered probably one of his best short stories, if not his best, is really about loneliness. And if you think about it, it is, obviously. I mean, these people were together every day. They got together every day for years or every other day for years. Their majority of their lives, if not their entire lives, and they were still very alone. And I was thinking, okay, what is it about Henry James that found him writing this this way? And I read about some things about him. And one of the things I heard was, one, he never had sex, never had an intimate relationship. And I don't know, but that is one thing. It's like he lived his life alone. So the thing that I kept coming across when I was looking into secondary sources and stuff was that everybody felt, and I did too after reading this, is that this is a story about very intense loneliness. He felt, this character, John Marcher, felt that he had something in store for him that was terrible. But I think it was looser than that, right? I mean, uh, the way he defines it is, uh, May Bartram asks, it's something you're merely to suffer? And he responds, well... Say to wait for, to have to meet, to face, to see suddenly break out in my life, possibly destroying all further consciousness, possibly annihilating me, possibly, on the other hand, only altering everything, striking at the root of all my world and leaving me to the consequences, however they shape themselves. I'm trying to figure out exactly what he's, you know, worried about or expecting, and obviously the, the story is him, him trying to define this, and uh, the only hint I thought of is that like he's clearly a very intelligent man and he sort of stands apart from the rest of society. At one point he says that they realize the majority of people are unintelligent. So is it just the standing apart from, you know, the common forms of life that society has that he feels himself apart from that, which leads into this loneliness thing? Or is it having so much fear about love about the uh, about exposing yourself to another human being that you set yourself apart and that love you know love will be the beast right in order to love you become very exposed like you turn on your back and very yeah and extremely vulnerable extremely i think he doesn't want to be conventional he doesn't want to be a part of normal society and i I think that part of this uh, setting apart is a product of his own desires. And in some ways, this beast in the jungle is what he's counting on to make him special, to make him different than everyone else. And I think, if, so if you look at the very first couple of pages when he's meeting May Bartram, the way he talks about her and the way he talks about her before they've actually had their conversation and when he's trying to figure out whether he knows her, whether he should talk to her, what exactly their prior relationship has been, if they've had one. Sort of um, a thread in that is this matter of how conventional she is and what her role in this situation is. And it's only when she actually, you know, confides in him that he has confided in her, his speciality, that she becomes special. It's like a reflection. She's this sort of screen, I think, for his own significance. And through that projection and reflection back to him, he's able to sort of believe in his significance. But when she's when he's talking about her in the beginning, he's saying that uh, he's talking about, you know, himself and her as opposed to, you know, these common people who are walking around, weather in, looking at 
the paintings and the books and, uh, you know, all of the fancy things about the house and how conventional they are. and Like dogs sniffing cupboards at one point. <laughs> that was one of my favorite lines. <laughs> there were aspects of the occasion that gave it for Marcher so much the air of the look round, previous to a sale highly advertised that excites or quenches as maybe the desire of acquisition. So yeah, these people are all sniffing around the cupboards and everything like that. But then like later, you know, there's more talk of this sort of um, acquisitive mode and uh, how conventional that is and, and how it's deliberately what he wants to set himself apart from. Because one of the chapters, I think, ends with him specifically saying that, like, because we were talking about what he what he's actually afraid of. He does express fear, but never of the beast in the jungle. He's always afraid when he's really actually afraid that he'll miss it. Right. That's what he I think he really fears. Mm -hmm. And he says at one point that. Part of that is he's afraid it'll have been sold. And mm. I think that is this sort of conventional mode. You know, the the buying and selling of uh, poetry is, you know, and, and meaning and, and, and literature, you know, art, things like that are significant as, as commodities and the buying and selling, the sniffing of cupboards. And he'll, he's afraid that this tale that he spun for himself with the beast in the jungle is just, you know, more of that. And that all this time he's been fooling himself. Isn't it in the beginning when he talks about May, there is him talking about how she, you know, doesn't have great worldly circumstances. I got the feeling that that's what held him back at first and yeah. that then they just got so used to each other. But that the way that he made it OK for himself to impose on her was because she didn't have, you know, if she were a, a woman of circumstance, then, you know, it would have been impossible. But he could he could take up her time <laughs> in his search um, because she, you know, was of a lesser social class than than him, but also of, you know, than maybe women that he, he might consider for marriage or something like that. There's something really weird going on when they first meet, because, I mean, for starters, I mean, if this is the the significant thing about him, I mean, if this is like the thing that's going to like set his set him apart how could he ever have forgotten mentioning it to one i can't person? figure that out i mean it, it's it's absurd well maybe that just shows you how insignificant he felt she was when he first met her well who cares i'll just tell that you know things you tell a taxi driver but he's convinced he, that she's the only one he's told right i mean who knows if that's true or not he knows that he's never he knows that he's never spoken he's afraid to have spoken it um he dared not admit that it was a possibility and so to her, that's what that's what at the beginning he's so ashamed for is because he's afraid of this uh, burden or an intensity or an anxiety that there's something not necessarily lurking that could slay him, but also to be slain. It may be an opportunity, I think, a lot like uh, the moviegoer, a moment of action, you know, some something like uh, to be taken. And just again, I've also been thinking about the moviegoer and his, you know, his love at the end, who just attaches herself to him as a form of existence. Um, it's not the only way, it's not the perfect way, but she wants to live through him and for him and remember her and that kind of thing. There's some strange language, and, and it's hard to tell because Henry James's language is just so strange to begin with, um, <laughs> and, and, and so ambiguous and difficult. Yeah, yeah. Can I just say that that kind of drove me mad? I mean, not in a bad way. It was just like the language really got me. I mean, I found myself rereading passages. I was like, wait a minute, what happened there? I love it. I love that, <laughs> that everything's backward. <laughs> 
<laughs> drove me crazy. And all the sentences. I don't know. I thought that it was, it's kind of like you're going on a little canoe trip or something with him. Like getting from one <laughs> thought to the next is, is a little journey every time. Major journey. Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I wonder if I would have thought differently of it if I hadn't heard that, that lecture first. Well, what was, what did he really say in the lecture though? Just out of curiosity. Real, I actually, it would be way too hard for me to, uh, Daniel, maybe you can give it a try. One of the things that I thought was mainly interesting about what he was saying was that he was using this story as an example of the way James explodes this dichotomy of symbolist and realist and refuses to compromise between, and this is something I wanted to talk about because I think it's interesting. He refuses to compromise between a symbolist mode and a realist mode in this novel and or in this novella. And I, I think that's interesting because... Um, Part of the thing you're trying to figure out through the whole thing, right, is like, what does this beast in the jungle represent? Um, does it represent anything? You know, did, uh, you know, is it is it just faking it? Is he making it up? Is he making it happen? Is it a self fulfilling prophecy? Is it free? Is he determined? You know, and also, you know, is this um, is the ending of the story? You know, has his revelation and throws himself on the tomb? Is it, tomb is this a symbolic act or is it actually you know is this a realist act is this you know him meeting his fate so i found that part of it sort of interesting and his his interpretation was that you know this is james refusing to compromise between these two parts of life because they are both parts of life and they exist in our lives together you know we don't uh, it's not that one of them is right and one of them is wrong it's that you know it's all a part of the whole and you know if you want to if you want to write a novel that really captures what life is like, then you have to have both modes. I was just going to add one of the interesting things I remember from the lecture is uh, he was mentioning in in realist fiction, you know, uh, one of the characters will work under a theory of life. Um, and through the course of the novel, that theory will either be confirmed or disaffirmed, and then another theory will pop up. But in James's work, for instance, um, he doesn't really work on that basis. There's this theory of life that this character is is working under, this beast in the jungle he's waiting for. And at the end, what we find out... Uh, what it's all about. It doesn't really confirm or disconfirm his theory. He, you know, we're, we're left not knowing whether a marriage of, uh, you know, a marriage to May Bartram was the way to go or if what the way he lived his life was the way to go. We're n none the wiser. <laughs> it made me think about, I don't know if you guys ever listened to Terence McKenna, psychedelic philosopher. He, you know, often talked about how, you know, doing psychedelics is, is somewhat akin to sexuality in that you can spend your whole life and never have, you know, never have sex, never have sexual experiences with other people. And this made me wonder about that, about, you know, is this some sort of just fear of sexuality, fear of intimacy? And you really can spend your entire life and live on earth for whatever, 50, 60, 80 years, and never experience what it, what it means to, to fully experience your own body. And I, I thought about that a lot with this. You know, this is a lot of fear that this guy has to never move forward because really you'd have to be way thicker than this guy is to not have realized that, that here was an opportunity for love, for intimacy, even if just for sex. Do you think, I mean, if the book was written in such a way that they got married and he realized that that was the beast in the jungle, would that have worked? <laughs> well, for this character? <laughs> yeah. I think it would have violated what you were just talking about, right? Because then he would have decided on an idea. I, well, I think that the thing is that this character is that conundrum in life. 
character itself would be a completely different character if he could have been married, saved from his beast. Well, I was wondering too, like to be a little more generous to him, because I do agree that he's a super huge narcissist and, you know, it's, there's a lot of that going on. But (laughs) I think also there's a universal sort of aspect to this, at least I I assume. (laughs) Maybe it's not universal. Maybe it's just me. Um, (laughs) It's just you and Marcher. Yeah, well, maybe so. I mean, but isn't there a sort of, at least at times in your life, you know, there's a sort of truth to this um, idea that you thought you were special, you know, you thought you were one amongst many, you know, who who deserved to be singled out. Yeah, when you're three. You think... Uh, well, I, I may be way behind the curve. <laughs> a little bit. I actually, I actually think that that it's true still. Not about myself, but yeah. about every. I mean, I think that everyone is um, magnificent. I, I think I'm total, like I'm fucking airy fairy in that way. <laughs> I think if you're a human being sucking air, then you are magnificent. Period. Well, there's something too about seeing that reflected in someone else that sort of confirms it for you, and. I think maybe, in, at least in some relationships, that's a part of it where, you know, that person allows you to sort of buy your story, that you're special and that you have, you know, they see something in you and you maybe hoped that there was something to you, you know, but you never really knew until somebody else saw it too. And this guy's just sort of run off the rails with that. <laughs> Except for this thing. And that's why this story is in many ways so brilliant and is very se- seriously about loneliness because that other person dies and that and, and that death as a metaphor that other person leaves the other but the door shuts you know seeing that seeing that seeing that specialness in you only reflected only because it's reflected in by in someone else or by someone else is really a a state of severe loneliness because if you cannot create that and have that in and of yourself then, as I say, you know, you're completely and totally alone. Yeah, and what does it mean to be kind of like half alone, to take a step and then not follow through? Like, you know, they spend, they, they spend all of their time together like right. an old married couple, but never go, th- never take that step. And so, you know, you've got this, the other part of this for me is, you know, say what you will about May, but she was just as nuts as he was to put up with it. You know, that whatever codependent crap you want to, you know, language you want to put on it. Um, the, I don't know what kind of fulfillment. I mean, it's wonderful. I have a million friends. I love humans, but there's only so much that, you know, there's only so much of a relationship you can have in that kind of friendship that isn't, just some sort of, you know, I mean, maybe at some point it just turns into some kind of sibling thing and then it's impossible. She was protecting him from information she had, right? I think it's actually a really sad story on her part because um, I have this line underlined somewhere, but I think when she, like, she knew pretty early on what was going on and or how she wanted it to end, which was, you know, love. I think the first th- time she confronts him about the whole beast in the jungle is she asks it, she asks him if it's love and he says, you know, no, I've done that before. It should be something more. But um, trying to find this line. Uh, 
sorry. Someone else talk. I want to find this line. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say, too, that I remembered that, you know, a major theme of what Jeffrey Pearl is talking about in that course and that he's trying to exemplify with this story is sort of the theme that we talked about when we were talking about Ulysses, too. It's that the conventional really is, you know, the magnificent and that, you know, that, that was, you know, the big, huge takeaway from Ulysses, I think for me was that, you know, what he's trying to do is he's trying to take a day in the life of an average guy and it's an average day. And, you know, he's trying to make that the odyssey. He's trying to make that significant on par with, you know, the greatest epic in the Western tradition. And if we can imbue our daily lives and our daily interactions and all the little events, you know, entailed in that with the sense of meaning that, you know, these great adventures have, then that is the way to sort of make a work of art of your own life or to really, you know, believe in yourself and believe in other people. And, and so that was uh, sort of, uh, what this novel was about for him. And that was kind of what, what Marcher failed to see. He failed to see that anything conventional could be significant. And it was always what he was fleeing from. I just think that that the stamp of the common doom, um, that's what he really dreaded. And it might be a vanity, but it also seems like a possibilities and constant doubt about it. Maybe there is another thing to do. Maybe there is something that, you know, he's supposed to be destined for, but maybe not at all. And maybe it's all in vain. And that's his, I think, I think maybe vanity and egoism are a part of the beast or a part of the jungle of his mind or his life. And also the pressure of, you know, your every, your impending death puts a lot of pressure on you. This or this, maybe that there ought to be something great because I am going to die. I might, I, I better do something significant. It is interesting that, I mean, the whole novel is uh, about relationships. And I think it briefly mentions that as a government worker of some sort. But, I mean, in this meaning and this intention that he's looking for through life or waiting for, never once does he mention or does the idea come up that it could be through work, you know? <laughs> yeah. I found that line. I just, uh, on page 14, she says, because uh, he's it's when he's trying to figure out if she's getting anything out of this. And she says, uh, the matter with me is simply that I'm more sure than ever. My curiosity, as you call it, will be but too well repaid. So I think she starts out thinking he'll realize it. And gradually as you know, the story unfolds, she loses hope and she goes to her grave, um, holding back. But really maybe when you say she's as crazy as he is, maybe off the bat, she should have said, look, you know, you're just a dude. Get over it. Let's. <laughs> I, I, I actually have a question about that idea of, of her being as crazy as he is. Um, what about the, this is on the Kindle uh, 59% in. It says, um, uh, well, you don't say, question mark. She had touched in her passage a bell near the chimney and it sunk back strangely pale. I'm afraid I'm too ill, she said. Too ill to tell me, he said. It sprang up sharp to him and almost to his lips, the fear she might die without giving him light. Ah, 
I mean, I hated him so much when I read that. <laughs> I'm telling you, she's fucking dying. And he's like, fuck, she's going to die before she told me. <laughs> Where'd you leave the will? Quick. <laughs> <laughs> what drawer is it in? Yeah. Did you sign it? I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, so, I mean, really, where does this, what does that say? What is this telling us that James is saying? Or even, I'm sorry, what was the professor's name of that lecture? Yeah. I mean, you know, what is he saying? I mean, this just is, to me, this is abhorrent. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I thought that the whole story was working, that this guy was going to be like, maybe turn out to be a killer or something or like he, or he was like a latent, uh, you know, savant that just, uh, you know, and like she was tapped into some kind of, you know, thing. Like I had no idea, you know, I really did not see the love coming. That's, that's and, what I thought um, too. I did not see the love coming. And you know, the thing is, is that she threw herself so unconditionally in with his lot that by extension, they were together. Her death was actually the first time he considered that he could be, left or that he could even have a partnership in this something, you know? And, and so I've got sympathy the other way, you know, like I think it's, I'm, and well, the thing is also, so does he, that's what kills him is his sympathy. Like he realizes. And at the last moment it's like, Oh my God, no. Oh God. And then it overwhelms him like very quickly. And then he said, and then there's this other little bit and, and she's like, Oh, Oh no. She warned me. And then he starts to like moan through his like just throat, like, oh, I shouldn't have figured this out. I wasn't meant to know it. Like, I wasn't meant to know that it was like going to be unrequited or whatever. And he literally throws himself down on, you know, where she's laying. Yeah, maybe I can read that last little Please. part. Because I think it's it's the most powerful part of the, the story. Well, I've also, yeah, I also read somewhere in another one of those secondary sources that that last paragraph of this um, novella is considered really one of the best ever written of James's work. Yeah, I would concur with that because I mean, where I did feel a little frustration with some of his syntax before, um, I I really did see some genius in in this. I agree. I'll read a little bit of this last bit here. It says the beast had lurked indeed and the beast at its hour had sprung. It had sprung in the twilight of the cold April when pale, ill, wasted, but all beautiful, and perhaps even then recoverable, she had risen from her chair to stand before him and let him imaginably guess. It had sprung as he didn't guess. It had sprung as she hopelessly turned from him, and by by the mark, by the time he left her, had fallen, and the mark, by the time he left her, had fallen where it was to fall. He had justified his fear and achieved his fate. He had failed with the last exactitude of all he was to fail of, and a moan now rose to his lips as he remembered she had prayed he mightn't know. This horror of waking, this was knowledge, knowledge under the breath of which the very tears in his eyes seemed to freeze. Through them, nonetheless, he tried to fix it and hold it. He kept it there before him so he might feel the pain. That, at least, belated and bitter, had something of the taste of life. But the bitterness suddenly sickened him, and it was as if, horribly, he saw the truth, in the cruelty of his image, what had been appointed and done. He saw the jungle of his life, and saw the lurking beast. Then, while he looked, perceived it, as by a stir of air, rise, huge and hideous, for the leap that was to settle him. His eyes darkened, it was close, and instinctively turning, in his hallucination, 
hallucination. To avoid it, he flung himself face down on the tomb. And that's the end. So part of, I think, is really interesting is that all this time he's been distanced, right? He's been, he's kept this, this um, compartmentalization of, you know, behavior and performance and, and, you know, going through the motions of life on the one hand and then, you know, what's really going on, which is, you know, himself and his story vis-a-vis the beast in the jungle. And at that last minute, the two things merge, you know, where, you know, he has that minute where he's going to try even this, he's going to try it the old way. And he's going to try and use the story that he's been telling himself to get that glimpse of life. But all of a sudden, this sort of story and the conventional life, the two worlds sort of collide into one. And he's no longer in control of his own narrative. He's at the mercy of his feelings. And maybe this is kind of what Mary was talking about, where um, that moment finally happens where you, you do take that next step. Right. You know, and that that happens for him to be a horrible moment when it's far too late. But he finally does feel that love. Uh, there's a little bit. Uh, oh, it's so sad. <clears throat> uh, there's a little bit before this is on 96. Um, and just before the bit that you read it. So he saw it, you know, the pale heart, the pieces fitted and fitted. The escape would have been to love her. Then he would have lived. I think. I mean, he's waiting, this beast in the jungle in a way, just he's waiting for life to happen and he doesn't realize that life just does happen and it's messy and, and you know, when he, the first thing he says about this beast is that it's going to um, alter everything, striking at the root of all my world and leading me to the consequences. Well, I mean, that's a part of just growing up and living life and I mean, I'm sympathetic to, to that because I'm super risk averse myself and I get just, you know, depressed about the things in life that alter and change your world. I mean, I'm, I haven't gotten married yet, but I'm already depressed at the prospects of getting divorced one day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll just, I'll just give you this hint. It sucks at the time, but you do get over it. Yeah. It's really, it's horrific, but you get over it. And not just, I mean, I don't have a house and I'm already worried about going bankrupt and I, you know, I don't, I have (laughs) the common doom. It's just, but it's just life, you know? That's just, it's just life. Yeah. So, like, you're saying that in this story, he was, he, he missed life. He was living it, but it's like, went right by him. He was waiting for this ground-altering thing, but that's just a part of, you know, beating people, relationships, all, you know, that's just how it works. Well, isn't that, I mean, doesn't that evoke that Zen idea of living in the moment? And, and therefore being aware, like Cesari, live where you are right now. Don't worry about the inevitable bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> and, don't, and don't worry why Laura actually used the word inevitable. <laughs> right. I think there's, I think it's also at the idea about, you know, I don't know, I guess that there's some theories that the, the most work that you do in your life is filtering out the things that you don't want to see the things that you ignore because they'll be too intense or because, but you know, I, I find that as I get older, I am so much more delighted with nature than I ever thought I would have been like the parrots, 
that I see in the trees now or just looking down, you know, looking out at the ocean today. And it's just a little bit different than it normally is. And it thrills me. And I think about, you know, how much of my youth I spent filtering that stuff out so I could take in things that, you know, meant more to me then. So, I mean, I think that, you know, he had to work his filter pretty hard to not see that she was in love with him. <laughs> and I think that that's a big part of life, too. It's like every once in a while saying, taking a step back and saying, I'm sorry, what am I filtering out here? What am I refusing to see that's right in front of my face? Right. I mean, it also makes me think, you know, not only was he filtering a lot out to not see that she was in love with him, but he missed so he missed so much. Right. But by his own willful ignorance. Yeah. At the moment that he was living. And that's something actually that make, makes me think of this idea, which actually I learned from my daughter, which is that um, every day she writes down something she's grateful for in her life now not in her life tomorrow or a few years from now when the bankruptcy occurs <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's it's you know being grateful for something that's right now so he didn't do that he didn't stop and write down i'm grateful for for may someone who will listen to me blather <laughs> yeah i'm grateful for this woman who listens to my shit all day long who involves herself a man of feeling didn't cause himself to be accompanied by a lady on a tiger hunt. I, 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 I uh, marked that one, too. I thought that that was very interesting. And I thought that that was, you know, that would that saved him a little bit in my mind because you've got the, you know, what's going on at the time and you couldn't expect someone. I mean, there's also the hint of Madonna whore in there of like someone who's good enough to marry or is someone who you would, you know, who would be that in that exalted a spot would not also be able to be in the spot where she would listen to your, your dirty secrets. Yeah. He makes a distinction when he first meets her that she's different from the kind of girl that he might marry. Right. Lesser right. circumstances. Right. Well, and also He's he's saying that when she tells him that he once confided in something in her, um, he says, you know, if if it was another woman, he might be afraid that he had made some vulgar offer to her or something, and that's what he'd forgotten. Mm. But he says with her, you know, he's not worried that it might be that because there's something special about her. He's trying to figure out what it is. And then, of course, it ends up being a reflection of him. Yeah. In the line, um, I, I, I think I missed that the first go around, but he says, it wasn't that she looked as if you could have given her shillings. It was impossible to look less so. So is he saying that, like, she's not a prostitute? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's what's so weird about that first part where they meet. She comes off almost kind of ghostly. Mm. Um, and the things that he says about her character are really weird because they're all, like, almost sort of phrased as questions. Like he's maybe even imagining them or he's putting them together himself. It, it's not clear that any of them are actually true. It's, it's really strange. I'm trying to find that part. Well, I guess we didn't talk about that, but a part of their meeting, they were looking for, you know, a common thread or some more exciting backstory to why oh, they yeah. met. I love that part. <laughs> yeah, he's saying, um, he would have liked to invent something to get her to make believe with him that some passage of a romantic or critical kind had originally occurred. 
he goes on about you know wishing that he had a fever and she fever and she nursed him back to health or she got robbed and he found the guy <laughs> yeah right <laughs> saved her from a capsized canoe yeah. there's this at six percent uh when she finally drifted toward him distinctly handsome though ever so much older older than when he had seen her before it might have been as an effect of her guessing that he had within the couple of hours devoted more imagination to her than to all the others put together, and had thereby penetrated to a kind of truth that the others were too stupid for. By the time their friends had passed, the charm of it was that even before they had spoken, they had practically arranged with each other to stay behind for a talk. The charm, happily, was in other things too, partly in there being scarce a spot at weather end without something to stay behind for. So it was serendipitous as well that they had an excuse to linger and could stay in this moment that was so hard to verbalize. And she was the one that did it first. And he almost just walked away out of the embarrassment of the situation. And he talks about how the past had just become a, I think this is the place, a barren landscape. It was just conjecture if there was anything between them after all, or it was all in his imagination. And she ratifies his internal belief and by telling him that there was a connection and that's what uh, allows them to connect from this point forward. You know, they're together until the end. Yeah, she's the greatest prop in his story that he's telling himself about himself. Yeah. <laughs> Although I would challenge any of you to to, to uh, say with honesty that you've never, uh, you know, lingered behind somewhere because you caught someone's eye. Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, really. Is, he, is anyone refuting that? Oh, I mean. No, I don't think so. But I thought that it was that it was charming in its in its normalcy. Like they almost like with, for starters, they almost had a normal romance. They lingered behind, knowing that they were interested in each other, and then quite, couldn't quite get it off past there. Yeah, and there was a kind of magic at work because they both wanted to do that. It, they kind of set themselves up for this moment, and it just happened to be a place in which this moment could. Uh, you know, this is a magical, but it, it, it's, it's, uh, like human chemistry, like without like sublimely, without either of them consciously setting out to do it, they had almost arranged it, but just by their desire. And it, it's what brought them face to face. See, I thought when I first read this, when I, the, at the beginning, I thought, all right, this is the beginning of this incredibly huge romance that I'm going to read about now. Well, yeah, I mean, in a way <laughs> that's you what know? he was thinking too. <laughs> he couldn't get it off the ground, so he had to start making stuff up. <laughs> I actually even sort of toyed with the reading of this where he has never even thought of the Beast of the Jungle before that moment when he talks to her, and it's her suggestion that spurs the whole thing on. Just because it's such a human faculty, you know, that you think you're special, <laughs> you think you're <laughs> significant and better than other people, that as soon as someone suggests it, you just latch right onto it. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, when they first meet, he thinks that, uh, oh, damn, what did I do? I must have like complimented her or propositioned her or something. Damn it, like this is going to be embarrassing. It reminded me of a friend I once had that like always got... He always got drunk, and the next day would just go around apologizing to everyone. Just, he didn't... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably better to start the evening. I'd like to apologize now for what I'm about to do. That's great. 
Well, there's something about, we haven't mentioned this, but his name too, right? John Marcher. Yeah. It's pretty loaded, I think. I mean, because that's what he's doing through this whole story. He's just, you know, deliberately, I mean, is it deliberately? I don't know. He's marching straight ahead towards his doom, you know, single-mindedly with blinders on. And the whole question then is like, you know, is he, is he being caused to march or is he, you know, on a, a path he can't stray from, you know, or is it, is it all the same thing? You got to write a parody and call him Prancer. <laughs> yeah. Where he stays behind with every woman. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, I think that's, uh, that's on. He's just an extreme lover. He goes around and hanging out at weather end all the time, picking up girls left and right. <laughs> Has a hot cadre of women, you know, that he cruises around with. Props himself in front of one of the paintings and mm-hmm. gives his dissertation. Oh yeah, with, yeah, with, with a pipe and a you know a glass of brandy. None of these that he prepares for himself. These are handed to him by beautiful women, uh, right. lit in full. Yeah. He's lingering behind in every room, <laughs> seeing who telling you about the history. <laughs> uh, you know this actually, uh, my father. Mm. <laughs> oh god, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, hanging out at weather. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything else that we uh, haven't like really uh, uh, addressed? Like John Marcher, that that's good. Yeah, it, it does stand out. Um, mm. I don't know. It's a good one. I'm glad uh, Mary pulled it out of her hat because uh, I, I immediately remembered wanting to read this before from that course, and uh, it's great. And I. We can't forget to get back to that, but I, I uh, really recommend if anybody's interested in modern literature. I've said this before, but that course is just—it's awesome. Yeah, I listened to it on the way to the border yesterday. <laughs> nice. That's a good time. Yeah. The uh, the other book that interests me in there was that Evelyn Waugh book he uh, he described. Oh right. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's interesting because I think I thought that I had read everything that Evelyn Waugh had written and I hadn't read that and I meant to read it so thank you for reminding me <laughs> there was a there's a passage that I liked here he was talking about after he was traveling he said he stayed away for a year visited the depths of Asia spending himself on scenes of romantic interest of superlative sanctity but what was present to him everywhere was that for a man who had known what he had known the world was vulgar and vain and he this is, I think, a contrast between the the meaning that he has with someone else who holds his secret um, and the kind of uh, bond that that created for him and you know saved him in a little place against the world that now he just wanders around and it just seems awful. Right. And it's uh, the shades of that Joni Mitchell song. You don't know what you got till it's gone. How's she doing? Is she okay? I think she's still in the hospital. Uh, I think that she's, you know. Are we uh, doing favorite lines? Sure. You start, Cesare. <laughs> Please. Oh, me? <laughs> what, did you have oh, one? me? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I had one on page 19, or I guess it makes no sense because I just printed mine off. But, uh, Since it was in time that he was to have met his fate, so it was in time that his fate was to have acted. No! And I, and that's my line. Well, 
it's a short it's a short story so it, it's there's there's a great uh, yeah. there's great I'm probability sorry, I'm sorry go ahead Cesare <laughs> Cesare please start wait, wait, over because I start over since I ruined this for you how about you both say it together that won't be confusing at all yeah. okay <laughs> on three <laughs> no okay. <laughs> uh, okay since it was in time that he was to have met his fate so it was in time that his fate was to have acted and as he waked up to the sense of no longer being young which was exactly the sense of being stale just as that in turn was the sense of being weak he waked up to another matter beside it all hung together they were subject he and the great vagueness to an equal and indivisible law where the possibilities themselves had accordingly turned stale when the secret of the gods had grown faint, had perhaps even quite evaporated, that, and that only, was failure. It wouldn't have been a failure to be bankrupt, dishonored, pillared, hanged. It was a failure not to be anything. The only thing I didn't, uh, the only thing that I didn't quite get in that is what indivisible law do you think he's talking about in that sentence? It all hung together. They were subject, he and the great vagueness, to an equal and indivisible law. That you got to live your life, no matter what. You meet a great Magnus, you can be the guy who doesn't live. It's take that risk, Cesare. Yeah. That's what he's saying. Hmm. That's not what I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in the Shire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. How about you, Daniel? Did you have a favorite? Uh, well, I liked a lot of them. I liked this one. Above all, she was in the secret of the difference between the forms he went through, those of his little office in the government, those of caring for his modest patrimony, for his library, for his garden in the country, for the people in London whose invitations he accepted and repaid, and the t detachment that reigned beneath them and made all, of all behavior, all that could in the least be called behavior, a long act of dissimulation. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> He's a very complex thinker, you know. He, it would be one thing if this was all purple prose that never went anywhere, and you know, he never was. You could never cash in all this flowery syntax for any revelation or any, you know, reasoning. But that's not him. He he does. Uh, he's got some real insights, and it's it. There's a payoff to. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed the way that you. you come to the end of a crazy long sentence and I had to really tell my editor to shut up like the whole time that I was reading this I just <laughs> kept saying shut up shut up um, but you'd get to the end of it and then you'd actually have to put yourself in reverse and go back through and say here's my here's the the end of the thought this is what I was going for from the beginning and then read back through to, right. to actually understand it I I Maybe because it was short, I thought that if maybe if this were a three hundred page novel, maybe it would be a problem. But I actually enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it. I was like, oh, this is like it was like taking some weird maze, you know, to get somewhere. That I, but it was all enjoyable. I mean, the writing is superb. Yeah, the language is superb. Yes, some of it really hit its mark. Yeah, it's funny, you know. I mean. I appreciate, you know, the style of like a Hemingway or something like that, you know, these short declarative sentences. And I, I, I appreciate plain language that communicates, you know, that has the virtue of communicating with everybody, but 
also sometimes, you know, I go to a book to read, you know, a master work, you know, I go to something to see somebody put down something that I can't do and to take me into another world. And, you know, yeah, and to really play someone who's a, a, lang- a language master or, or a poetic language master. There's, some, there's a lot to it. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people think that English isn't a beautiful language. And even if it isn't beautiful, you can certainly do beautiful things with it. I thought he was uh, English the first time I read it. Uh, well, uh, kind of the time he lived. They were still yeah. Yeah, pretty much stuck in that. I didn't the guy in that course he mentioned at one point that his students were often disappointed when they realized that you know the tales of the wild west were in the same they were contemporary with uh, Henry James (laughs) 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 that's funny sort of shatters that illusion was that your only favorite line Laura or did you have another one did I say a line no you said that Cesare's was yours oh no I do have another one Um, it's um um, it's just a, it's a short line and I think May says it and remember in that, um, email I wrote that I feel like our favorite lines should reflect the soul of the book. Of course it can reflect anything, you know, whatever you want, I'm totally open it to It should reflect your soul. Yeah, my soul. <laughs> exactly. Considering this is a book of a narcissist. Okay, fine. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, so the line I have is, I, I, May says it and it's short and she says, I'm not sure you understood. You've nothing to wait for more. It has come. Yeah, there was a lot of impact with that one. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that reflects the book to me. What? Just, just tell me what? What's come? What? <laughs> I don't, okay, all right. I don't see anything. I want to put. Oh, okay, anyway. Uh, please. I, um, I think I've said that to many men myself. Yeah. Um, okay, seriously, I can't forget to give you all the names of my exes. I really need a committee. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Please, please send us an email. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, well. Yeah. Nathan, did you want to go or do you want me to go? Oh, yeah. Pl- no, 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 please. I just wanted to also to throw it back to Daniel. If you had like another one you were just sitting on, I don't think you have to limit yourself to just, you know, one. No, I'm good. Yeah, you guys go. All okay. right. He's good. I think someone, I mean, we've we talked about this one a little bit, but didn't actually get the whole line out with this one. Um, the great rooms caused so much poetry and history to press upon him that he needed some straying apart to feel in a proper relation with them. Though his impulse was not, as happened, like the gloating of some of his companions, to be compared to the movements of a dog sniffing a cupboard. You know, I wish we'd read that one nice. earlier. I, I think that one actually does sum up a lot of the novel in spirit. Nice. Uh, I have um, I have a one that's just like a little snippet. And then I, I, I have two, basically, but here. Uh, um this is what May says to John to, after they've been talking about all of the beast in the jungle. Did we ever dream with all of our dreams that we would sit and talk of it thus? And that's all. I, I, that's so pretty. It's so, I mean, and it's so innocent and like, you know what? You're talking about it. You're killing it. Like now looking back, it, it just crushes my heart. Um, but there was uh, one more. This is on uh, location 631. Ah, I found out how to look at that. Okay. He stood for an hour, 
powerless to turn away and yet powerless to penetrate the darkness of death, fixing with his eyes her inscribed name and date, beating, and I hit the back button. <laughs> this is why it stinks. Wow, I don't remember that Yeah, one. yeah, it was prescient. I hit the back button. <laughs> <laughs> He says, uh, <laughs> fixing with his eyes her inscribed name and date, beating his forehead against the fact of the secret they kept, drawing his breath while he waited as if some sense would in pity of him rise from the stones. He kneeled on the stones, however, in vain. They kept what they concealed, and if the face of the tomb did become a face for him, it was because her two names became a pair of eyes that didn't know him. He gave them a last long look, but no palest light broke. Yeah. I like that you can compare it to the line, which I don't have right in front of me, in the beginning when she he's talking about her eyes coming through the mask. And now, you know, it's seeing her eyes in the tombstone. Mm -hmm. That other one, the first one you mentioned too, I thought was great because um, I think she's telling him right there what it is, isn't she? Yeah. Well, and, and also, like, if you maybe could have just seized it yourself instead of waiting for it to be seen somehow, I don't know. I it, It's a heartbreaker. It's sadder the more you think of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has to get it. He has to get it himself. But he doesn't. I just I do think, though, that there are, you know, it's a different thing when you actually say no to something. And if there's something that you just kind of missed, right? Um, but saying no to things is the, I think, you know, saying no to love. One's doom, however, was never baffled. And on the day she told him his own, uh, am I stealing something else? I'm totally looking at that line right now. <laughs> <laughs> you go, you go ahead, believe. Laura. You go ahead, no, Laura. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's all right. You started it. Sorry. Go no, ahead. Not. But still. Now There's I just feel bad. Going on here with you and me, Cesare. That's it. You guys are bound. I know. Mentally. Oh I can't believe I was reading. All right, you want me to say it? Yes. One's doom, however, was never baffled. And on the day she told him his own had come down, she had seen him but stupidly stare at the escape she offered him. The escape she offered him? She, he said See? no. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> got oh, All right. Well, I wonder if y'all are reading anything else that, um, you know, maybe intersects with uh, this in tone or just completely different, but just by the way. Man, I feel like I couldn't be, I, what I'm reading couldn't be more different. I'm reading Burr by <laughs> Gore Vidal. Oh, wow. I had, There's a Memphis filmmaker who just made a great documentary about him. I watched a great documentary about him and, that, and realized that, uh, you know, I had read some of his political writing, but I had never read any of his uh, fiction. Fiction. And, God, what an incredible character he was. Um, <laughs> but reading this, uh, it's, it's interesting because it's not... Um, there's nothing in, very pretty about it. I'm not. I'm not madly in love with it, even though I see how great it is. It's kind of weird, hmm. but I will press on. Yeah, I, don't, I'm, I haven't read any of his fiction, but I've 
from what I've heard, it's like it, it's not really aging as well as his uh, essays, and or I mean, people just don't seem to be as in love with it. I don't know. Interesting. Imagination. He had a hell of an imagination. God, didn't he? Mm -hmm. I realized recently that, that I love liars. <laughs> <laughs> that lying, you know, that what takes more imagination than lying. <laughs> I love the liars of the world. Tell me great stories. That documentary is called Best of Enemies. It's about his... Uh, oh, right. Debate it with Buckley. God, there's some of oh, the stuff right. with, I want to see with that. me and Buckley in this uh, documentary that I saw on Netflix. <laughs> it's just, it's painful. It's so uncomfortable to watch. It's painful to watch, but it's so good. <laughs> I don't <laughs> yeah, know if I could yeah, sit through I an entire documentary about it. Hmm. Oh, it's nice to watch people who are who can be that eloquent off the cuff. Yeah, but also just really, I mean. It's violent, you know? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, there is a lot of violence in it. It's interesting. You mean in the tone of the conversation? I'm not sure what the... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're both were, I mean, there's vitri vitriolic. Mm. Yeah. But I'm sorry, yeah. in the, you know, in the war of wit, he, uh, he brought a gun to the knife fight. It's frightening. Yeah, I don't, I mean, he, he got his victory, but I think it was kind of a Pyrrhic victory. If you look at the tone of uh, where, you know, televised political debate has gone from there, yeah. I think uh, it's clear that it, you know, it went in that direction and it wasn't a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. No one else reading anything? Actually, no, I've been watching a lot of television uh, uh well it's it's not germane but the unit uh, <laughs> is very good it's written by david mamet and um i've been watching the seasons of it Wait, which one it's called the unit it's no longer on television um but it did come uh. on cbs i think for a while anyway i'm just watching it and uh streaming anyway but it's it's really good it deals a lot with the family and people of like elite military stuff and they did one episode about the morality of um their jobs and i expected it to be like just imagine like whatever kind of pat thing that you know you think they do to like handle it like well it's for america whatever they don't it's disturbing and it works and it's great and things just keep going um and uh yeah can you find it where, where can you find that it's on netflix sure sure uh it's on um amazon uh it's um probably other things but it's called the unit and yeah i didn't you know it's a i was looking for a you know, something that would engage me because I'm very interested in also like the kinds of missions that they do going back to our earlier conversation. Like, I mean, just what's going on in the world, there's a scale to it. And so to see someone looking at, you know, global missions and the interactions of politics and power and, you know, things are very interesting to me right now because I'm trying to see what's going on, but it's fiction. So whatever. Oh, huh, interesting. I'll take a look. I love David Mammon. I love a lot of his plays. I saw American Buffalo when it came out a hundred years ago with uh, what was it? who's that actor who played in played it? Um, oh God, who's that actor? Is it Sam <laughs> Shepard. You know, yeah, the actor. Oh, the one that does the shows. Oh, in the movies, he does the movies. 
No. Was it Sam? Was it Sam Shepard? No, it was Sam Shepard. It wasn't. It was. Uh, you know, he always plays a gangster. Oh. Um, and he was married to that woman. Okay, we're gonna figure this out. Ray Liotta, <laughs> Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro. <laughs> Yeah, I, no, you think of Robert De Niro and... Uh, Pacino? He was a yeah, Al Pacino, Al Pacino, Al Pacino. Okay. Al Pacino. Oh, right, right, no, I yeah, 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 no, I, yeah, I saw him uh, <laughs> do American Buffalo when it came out 100 years ago. Nice. That was oh, wild, that was wild, very wild experience, because they, it was in a theater that uh, was off-Broadway here in New York, and um, the theater uh, was very uh, small. So, you know, you were right there and Pacino was right there. I mean, it was like it was like it was in your living room. It's really cool. Wow. It was really fun to watch that. I'm going to be up there Thursday. We're going to see something. I don't know what. You are? Yeah. Well, Jesus, give me a call. Okay, great. <laughs> but don't worry about it. Don't feel pressure. It's okay. Everything's cool. Well, if I have time, I'd love to. I don't know if we will. But... Don't worry about it. But any, are you going to a show or something? Yeah, they, they always give her tickets, but I think, see, I actually kind of hate musical theater, and oh, I'm pretty yeah. sure that's what we're doing. So. <laughs> what, 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 what musical theater? You don't know? I don't know. Whatever they give her tickets to is what we'll do. Oh, all right. But it will be cool just to see a show. It's too bad you yeah. can't get to Boston, man. Nick Offerman is doing Confederacy of Dunces in, in Boston. Oh, wow. That that's I would cool. really love to see. That sounds, I'm hoping yeah. that it goes well and that they that they travel with it, because I would see that they probably will i think I've, I've heard cool. good you know stuff about it so they probably will i didn't even realize that had been adapted i think it's been tried a bazillion times <laughs> wow yeah, yeah cesari do you have something you're reading um i'm reading logic comics the epic search for truth which is a graphic novel about bertrand russell <laughs> nice <laughs> i've seen that wow i haven't even heard cool. of that it's kind of it like it's I'm interested in the philosophy and I can't for the life of me even get close to reading any, you know, analytic stuff. So it's a nice intermediate. And I finished uh, that book. Um, what's it called? Uh, it's right here. You know, that book, <laughs> that, that book. book that was with, with that with actor. That has pages. With the, with the pages. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the world beyond your head. I, yeah, oh, I right. Oh, like yeah. That. What was your final verdict? Yeah. You know, it's I, I'm still compiling my notes, and I did like it. I thought he was a little um, heavy-handed on on Kant, and uh, also it just like depresses yeah. me because he's talking about these cool careers people have, and I'm like, well, that's great. Like I have still yeah. still have a shitty career. <laughs> no, <laughs> I know. Right? He's like, you know, people that are you know situated in the world and working with their hands and making a impact. One of those things. I, yeah. I also have an idea of myself as a handyman, but I've never actually done anything. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of that kind of confirmed confirmed my ideas of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have my an idea of myself as an artist, but all I do is. <laughs> yeah, I'm a superhero in another life. <laughs> Ant Man. <laughs> I just finished reading uh, The Inferno again oh, for school. Wowie. Wow. wow. Actually, I'm kind of a fan of the, the more I've, the, I've read it enough times now that I'm, I'm sort of a fan, but I got to write a, a cool paper on it, which was kind of exciting because I, I did the bit where Ugolino is eating Ruggieri's head at the end of The Inferno. <laughs> and, uh, He's just eternally eating his head, and uh, I got to 
<laughs> I got to close with that Nietzsche quote, uh, what we object to in Christianity is taste, not right. uh, logic. <laughs> <laughs> well, Are you saying that, head is, that, that eating head is not delicious? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a matter of taste. Yeah, that's right? it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny.